Father, thanks so much for a gorgeous morning out and for bringing us out to your house to study your word, open our minds, to help us to see and understand and help us to soberly understand that um, eternity is a very long time and every person we meet is going to either be in one of two places. I pray that that would spur us to be godly testimony and witness to you and to tell others of the good news. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, yes. Once we ascend from the lowest chambers of hell into heaven, I'd like to talk about paradise. And my brief point is Clarence Larkin suggests that paradise is completely empty right now. Yeah, we'll talk about him. So that's one thing. In heaven. We'll talk about him in the heaven part. All right. Um, the nature of hell. We, we'll just quickly go over this and just uh, do a quick recap on it. Um, it's a place of unquenchable fire. Um, and again, the question is, is it real fire? Is it real fire as we understand fire to be? Or is it metaphorical? Well, it's not really relevant whether it's real fire or metaphorical fire. What is the effect? It says fire. That's how it feels to those who are in hell. How do we know that? Well, Christ again, again, again talked about outer darkness, talked about the fire that doesn't go out, talked about being cast into eternal fire. Um, it's a place of memory and remorse. What does that mean? People remember. They have memory. The rich uh, man who found himself in Hades remembered what it was like in life. He had a memory. And that memory is unfettered. You don't get Alzheimer's in hell. You remember perfectly everything. Um, you remember all the opportunities that you had in life. You remember all the good that you had in life. You remember all the positive things in life. And uh, that memory will be with you forever. It's a place of thirst, of deprivation. Um, not only physical torment, but hunger and thirst. It's a place of misery and pain. He, the rich man talked about torments, plural. It's not just tormented. He is in torments. He is multiply tormented. Not only with the physical pain, but the emotional pain, the mental pain, the memory, all of that. It's a place of frustration and anger. What does that mean? Uh, it talks about gnashing your teeth. You ever seen anybody just gnash their teeth in anger? Well, that's what one of the metaphors that Christ talks about where it's a place where people gnash their teeth in pain and anger. It's a place of separation, separation from God. Um, many people live their lives as though they don't want God in them and God will give them the wish that they want. It's a place of separation from God. They will never ever, ever be with anyone. It's a place of loneliness, even talks about. It's a place of undiluted divine wrath. What does that mean? God does not tone down the wrath. The wrath stays as strong in hell as it's ever been. It, it's never going to stop. It's never going to slow down. God's never going to give you a day off of torment. Um, Revelation 14.10 says, The smoke of their torment ascends up forever and forever. Um, it doesn't stop. It never ends. It's a place originally prepared for Satan and his angels. We talked about that. God did not design it for human beings. We go there because of our sin. It's a place of all eternity. And, you know, it, it's, it's frustrating to me when I read articles and I read theologians that talk about, um, we're talking about in a second, annihilationism, where people just go and they burn up and that's the end of them and they don't, there's no conscious torment forever. And every time you read about hell in the Bible, it talks about forever. It talks about eternality. It talks about torment forever and uh, I don't know how they get around that I mean you've got to go with what the Bible says or you don't it says it's forever it's a place of differing degrees how do we know that well 
in Matthew 11, it talks about, uh, and in um, Luke and Luke 12 and 20, it talks about the servant who knew his master's will and didn't do it will be beaten with few stripes. All right, he will be beaten with many stripes. The one who didn't know will be beaten with few. Also, what did Christ say about Chorazin and Bethsaida? Remember that? Remember when he cursed those towns? He says, more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. That's interesting. Why would it be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah? I mean, when you think of the bad cities in the Bible, which, which two pop up to the top of the list? Those two. Yet, Christ said it's going to be more tolerable for them in the day of judgment than for Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. Why was that? Why is it going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah? They had lot. What did Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum have? Christ. <laughs> I mean... Lot was, I mean, Lot was a believer, right? We know that because it talked about his righteous soul. But he was a pretty pathetic one. Sodom and Gomorrah had Lot. Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum had Jesus Christ incarnate, the, the second person of the Trinity there preaching, and they didn't repent. And Christ said it's going to be better for, it'd be better to be a Sodomite than it's going to be to be somebody from Capernaum because you had full light. And we understand one of the things the Bible says is that your degree of punishment, God holds you responsible for the amount of light you have. The more light you have, the more responsible you are. And that's one of the things that Paul argues in Romans chapter 2. In Romans 2, the Jew was making the... He, he, Paul's using an argument here about the Jews who thought that, hey, you know, we're the people of God, you know, we're in with God, we have the light of God. And Paul says, no, that just makes you doubly responsible because you know what God wants now. To whom much is given, much is required. You know God's word. You know God's will. You know God's law. And when you break it, you're doubly damned, in a sense, over the person who doesn't know God's law and breaks it. Judgment is always by light. And for God to be totally just, He's going to bring all of that into account. He's going to take everything into consideration. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the third point there uh, also is referenced, I mean, alluded to anyhow in Revelation 20 about mm-hmm. being judged according to their works. Yeah, you judge according to their works. Now, that's not... Some people say, well, that means, you know, the scales are brought out and we do the balancing act. No, that's not what it's talking about. No, no, it's not. Because the works there are... How, how, what did you do? What was your life like? And this is the thing, folks. You, understand, you know, most, most unbelievers don't understand this. God has a perfect record of everything. He has a perfect record of everything. There, there's, no, there's no, well, you didn't understand it, God. That's not the way it really happened. No, He's got the perfect record of everything. He not only has what you did, He has what you thought, He had your motivations, He had your actions. Everything is there. And when you stand before God as a lost person outside the, the blood of Christ, every deed is going to be there in, in its raw rawness. And there's not going to be any hiding. There's not going to be any running. There's not going to be any covering it up. It's all going to be there. Now, here's the beauty. When you, become, when you come to Christ as your Lord and Savior and you become redeemed, what does God do with those records? He expunges them. Now, think about that one. That's a fancy word for means he erases them. Uh, on what basis? On the basis of Christ's death for us. God takes those and erases our sin. That means when I stand before God, I will never give an account for my sin. 
My sin is covered by the blood of Christ. Now, there's going to be a reward. We'll talk about this later. There's going to be a reward for me on the basis of my faithfulness to what I have done in life. But I'm not going to be judged for my sin. My sin is covered by the blood of Christ. If there was one unforgiven sin, what would happen? No heaven, right? No heaven. So, God has forgiven me all of my sin. But we understand that this is a place of differing degrees. And for God to be totally just, He not only takes into consideration those things, that evil that people do in life, but the evil influences that live on after their death. And you think of the great sinners of history like Stalin and Mussolini and Hitler and all the big bad guys that, that their evil lives on. Even to this day, we're cursed by their evil. That all lives on. And God is going to take all of it into consideration. And when those books are open and the judgment is rendered, nobody's going to say, this isn't a fair, fair judgment. It's all going to be there. God is going to be just. Nobody gets away. Who occupies hell? Satan. He's an inmate. Understand that. Modern television series and that portrays Satan as sort of the jailer, the warden of hell, the, the chief tormentor. No, that's not the way it operates. Satan is not in hell. Satan does not have his headquarters in hell. Satan is probably nowhere near hell. In fact, where is Satan? He's the prince and power of the air. All right. And in Job, where is Satan? Is he in hell? No, he's in heaven. He has access to heaven. Um, even now, he has access to heaven. Um, he's roaming, walking about, to and fro, seeking whom he may devour. Right? Um, he's not in hell. Uh, he... He's going to be an inmate of the eternal lake of fire. He's going to be there tormented with the rest of the fallen humanity. Yeah, true. Um. I'm still mixed up in the way, but Well, because history has to end. We haven't hit in the eternal state yet. Yeah. Well, yeah, I sort of understand what you're saying. Um, the answer to that is because there's an end of history. We haven't hit the end of history yet. At the end of history, human history, all humanity is going to be in one of two places, heaven forever or hell forever. Right now, we're still playing the game, so to speak. Right now, we're still... Think of it as a Monopoly game. We're still playing the game. There comes a day when the game is over and everything's added up and those who are lost will be in hell forever. Those who are redeemed will be in heaven forever. But right now, we're still going through history. There's still people being born. There's still history to happen. And we'll, we'll sort that all out when we talk about doctrine of future things. Um, but the, 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 one of the good points you bring out there, or question that it brings out, is the final judgment, the great white throne, is when the game is over. That's when history ends. That's when, that's when God takes into consideration every sin that was ever committed and He's going to judge it finally at that point in time. And then there's going to be an eternal fixation where those who are lost will be lost forever, damned forever. Those who are redeemed will be redeemed forever. All right, but there, that's the end point of human history. Um, and Satan is going to be an inmate in the lake of fire. Revelation 20.10, he was cast in the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are. Um, the Antichrist is going to be there in the lake of fire. And we know that from Revelation 19. 
where he and the false prophet, the next one, are cast alive in the lake of fire. And they're there a thousand years later, so much for annihilationism. And some say, well, no, that just means that they get a longer time before they get burned out of existence. No, that's not what it, it's talking about. They're there forever. Fallen angels are going to be in the lake of fire. All the demons of all the ages are going to be there. Now, we're not told specifically in the Bible when they are sent there. We're not told that. The Bible doesn't tell us that. Um, some theologians have said, well, this happens prior to the millennium. You know, Satan is cast in the bottomless pit and the false, uh, the unredeemed angels are in the lake of fire. I don't think that's the case um, necessarily. I think it's probably at the end of the millennium, but we don't know. That's not something that God has told us. But eternally, where are they going to go? The lake of fire, because that's what God prepared it for, right? He prepared it for the devil and his angels. So someday they're going to be there forever. Yeah. Could, I mean, I'm inclined to believe what you just said about you would be more inclined to believe that it would be after the millennium. And my reason for believing it would be after the millennium is because during the millennium, people are going to be born and people are still going to be tempted and mm -hmm. how can that happen if there is no evil spirits for them to be tempted by? Um, the way it can happen is because they don't need evil spirits to make you sin. You do well on your own. Well, yeah, there you go. Yeah. So that, that's one of the misnomers. I mean, some people think, well, if Satan wasn't around and demons were around, people wouldn't sin. Come on, folks. You don't need the devil to sin, right? What's your greatest enemy? The flesh. You know, that's, that's your number one public enemy. You know, public enemy number one is your flesh. And, you know, every sin you do is done through your flesh. Now, there may be external influences on your flesh, right? The world and the, and the devil may influence that. But let me tell you, folks, the reason you sin, the reason you've committed every sin that you've ever committed is not because the devil made you do it. It's because you have a fallen flesh. And the devil can work through that fallenness. But it's your flesh that is the great enemy. So it's not Satan. That's true. I had thought of it. I mean, I... What is Satan behind? He's behind false religion. Oh. Right? He's behind the, the systems of deception. And we see that at the end of Revelation or in Revelation 20, where he's loosed and he deceives the nations. All right? He, he, Satan's, look folks, 99.99% of Satan's activity and demonic activity is in false systems of belief. That's where they're going to focus their effort. Now, occasionally a demon might trot around and try to get somebody to commit an act of sin, but that's, that's, you know, that, that's low payback. I mean, they're, they're, where they're after is they're after false religion. They're after false belief because if they can get a system of false religion started, they've ensnared millions. If they could get you to commit an act of sin, they've just got one gotcha on you. Um, you know, you look at the great, you know, Mormonism. Where'd that come from? I'm sorry, it came from Satan. And look how many millions and millions and millions of people are ensnared in that. Ensnared in that system that that promises Godhood, promises heaven, promises eternal life, and they're not going to get it. They're going to die and find themselves in hell. And they're going to wonder how they got there. Um, that's where Satan's activities lie. It's not in getting people to sin. Um, the devil does not make you do it. That's Flip Wilson. The devil made me do it. No, the devil doesn't make you do it. It's your flesh. And by the way, during the millennium, where, when Satan is bound and his demons are evidently bound, do people still sin? 
Yeah, where does that come from? Fallenness. The flesh. It's there. Um, Judas Iscariot is in hell. Now, some people say, well, he went to his own place and that's a euphemism for something else. And No, where did it, Judas go? He went to hell. He's lost, right? He's a lost person. And probably of all of the people that have ever lived, he and the Antichrist and false prophet are the ones that are the most tormented in there. Stop and think about it. Walking with the Jesus Christ for three and a half years, you sell him for 20 bucks. 30 pieces, so about $20. I mean, think about the privilege. And see, that's, that's the thing. The more light you have, the more responsible you are. I was listening to a message. I was listening to a message by Steve Lawson, and he said, you know, it's better to go to hell from the jungles of Africa than to go to hell from the pavement of America where you're around churches that preach and teach the gospel. You're better off to be a, somebody born in Bongo Bongo than it is to be born in America and hear the gospel and reject it. Yeah, I'm sorry. In this life, we always fall short because of the sinful flesh. In heaven, we won't have the flesh to deal with. We won't have our fallenness. Flesh, when we talk about flesh, we're not talking about just this. This. We're talking about our human fallenness, which includes this. All right? We're talking about our human fallenness. Um, and in heaven, we will not have that fallenness. We won't be able to sin. That's the beauty of heaven to me, is that I won't be able to foul it up. Um, I won't be able to commit an act of sin. Not only will I not want to commit an act of sin, I won't be able to commit an act of sin. That's great. That's a wonderful thing. Um, all the unredeemed of all the ages are going to be in the lake of fire. The eternality. Just We talked about this a little bit. Um, and the reason I put this in here is because there's, a, there's really a movement in um, modern evangelicalism to try and deny the eternality of hell. And there are some big names coming behind this. Um, John R. Stott, which is a very good, he's a good, uh, good in many ways. He's with InterVarsity Press. He, he buys into this. Clark Pinnock, you just don't, you just avoid him, okay? And you'll be better off. Just don't read his stuff. You'll be better off. Um, he buys into this whole thing. And, and the concept of annihilationism is it's, hell is not eternal because God's character is such that he would not, in their mind, say, God would not endure to have an eternal chamber of horrors where he torments people. God is not, their image of God is God is not someone who would torment people. Well, what does God say about that? What does God say? Yeah, what's so hard to understand about that? See, our problem is, this is our problem, and we talked about this before. You can't, we cannot take our fallen notions of justice and morality and rightness and goodness and impose them on God, right? Because our, we are fallen. We will not think right when it comes to those things. What we need to do is we need to go to what does God say God will do? God says the smoke of their torment ascends up forever. Christ taught about the eternality of hell. He said where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. 
Folks, it's not hard to read the Bible and come away with the understanding that hell is eternal. And you can't do all kinds of backflips and handsprings to make God say something He's not saying. Hell is an eternal place of torment. The Bible has no concept of it being a temporary place where people are punished on, you know, for their sin and then they go out of existence and they just don't exist. But, okay, since hell was created for Satan and his angels, and since God doesn't send us to hell, we send ourselves there if we don't choose him as Savior, then isn't the, isn't the punishment and the eternality and all the, you know, stuff that hell is, since it was created for the evil one, for Satan and his fallen ones, the angels, then those who don't choose Christ choose by, by, by default to go there, then it's not God punishing me because God's mean. I, I've chosen to go there by default, so mm-hmm. I'm getting punished for what should have been the punishment for Satan and his angels. Yeah. That, and that's the whole justice of God. We talked about this way you know, a year ago. God is just. What does that mean? Whatever, by definition, right? Something is just because God does it. God doesn't do it because it is just. Do you understand the difference? God defines. He defines it. God is the definition of what is just. So if God is doing it, it is a just thing. Now you may look at that and say, well, that's not fair. Well, that's your fallenness coming into play. That's your fallenness. You can't go there. You've got to say, God does what is right. By definition, God does what is right. Therefore, if God punishes the lost for eternity, by definition, that is the right and just thing to do. And we may not understand it. We may not like it. I'll tell you quite honestly, folks, I do not like the concept of an eternal hell. I really don't. Personally, I don't like that. If I was the designer of things, I would have designed it differently. But you know what? It's not me to decide that. It's God. God decided this is God's plan. It's God's universe. And you go there. I'm not the designer of that. Which, by the way, is sort of a hint that man did not write this book because man would not have come up with this. Every human, every religion out there says what? Well, eventually you sort of work your way back to God. You eventually sort of get there. And here's a book that says, no, you don't. There's an eternality to this place of the lost. Yeah, Dave. Are you saying that you choose to go there? By default. You don't choose to go there, actually, but you choose by default because you don't choose Jesus as your Savior. Yeah, we're going to sort through some of this when we get into the decrees of God and sovereignty and election and we'll be having fights and arguments and throwing things at each other and... You know, we're gonna. I'm gonna ask to not have donuts so I don't get hit with a donut that that week. You know, um, that, th- those are tough. Those are really that th- that's tough. That's tough for us to work through. The Bible teaches, though. Here's what the Bible really teaches. The Bible teaches that men go to hell because of their sin and their rejection of God. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what you've got to go with. Now that rejection may take many different forms, right? It may be a rejection of indifference. You just never take the time to look at the sky and say, I wonder who created this thing. Or it may be a a rejection of of knowledge where you have the gospel and you say, forget it, I'm going my own way. The Bible always teaches that men go to hell because of their 
rejection of God. And that takes many different forms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and human. That's a consequence. Yeah, that's probably that's probably a good way to put it. It's not that you know somebody comes up and says, "Okay, you're going to die in two minutes. Do you want to go to heaven or hell? I'm going to pick hell. I want to burn forever." Yeah. No, they don't, that's not what people do, right? They just go their own way. They do their own thing. They live their own lives. And the consequence is hell. And by the way, it's interesting. The, the rich man who was in hell, he never questioned the fairness of God. Right? He was concerned about his brothers, but he never said, wait a minute, this isn't fair. I shouldn't be here. He never questioned that. See, that's the, and that's the danger. Yeah. 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 And see, that's the danger. That's the danger we have when it comes to things like this. Is we want to impose our thinking, our morality, our idea of right and wrong, just and unjust, fair and unfair on something like this, and it clashes with it. And when it clashes with it, there are people that just say, okay, I'm more right than God's word is. Don't go there. <laughs> Chill. What about that gothic, those gothic Yeah, they choose a rebellious lifestyle. They choose that. And again, rebellion takes a lot of forms, people. Style doesn't mean anything. Yeah, you, don't, you can't go there. But, but the whole point is, Rejection of Christ, it's not like everybody says, okay, I reject Jesus Christ as my Savior. Not everybody's done that. But what has everybody done? Everybody's gone their own way. They're like sheep gone astray. Everybody's turned their own way. They've done their own thing. And Romans, 7, or Romans 1 very clearly teaches that the, that the lost, the pagan lost, the people who've never heard the message of Christ, if by anything they are guilty because they can look at around us and see that there's some... Something behind what they see, unless you go to school and you're taught an evolution that there is no God. You've got to go and be taught that. Um, God holds them responsible. And we say, well, that's not fair. This guy had five chances. This guy had one chance. Folks, that's not for us to decide. In fact, quite honestly, we're going to talk about this, and I don't want to get down this road too. We're going to have a big argument in this class. You know that. It's coming. Um, People say, well, you know, God needs to be fair. If God was fair, what would he do? Send us all to hell. If God was fair, if you want God to be perfectly fair in the universe, the fair thing for God to do is send us all to hell. 
And it's, by, it's God's grace that saves. And, and so don't, I don't want... And quite honestly, somebody to say, well, I just want God to be fair with me. Look, I don't want God to be fair with me. I want God's grace. <laughs> I want God's mercy. I don't want fair, because I know what fair is. God's redemption of Christ. Yeah. I want, I want God to be gracious to me. Um, but it is eternal. This, this place, will, you don't get out of it. And some of the arguments they foist on, you say, well, God's a God of love. He wouldn't condemn any of His creation to eternal punishment. Well, wait a minute. God is love, but what else do we know about God? He is just. God is a God of wrath. God is a God of righteousness. righteousness. He's a God of justice. See, and remember, we talked about this when we talked about the doctrine of God. You can't take one attribute of God and make that the defining attribute. God is all of those things. And, they're all, and, and remember we said, He's all those things in perfect balance. So He's not going to sacrifice one attribute on this altar of another. He's not going to sacrifice His, sacrifice his attribute of love on the altar of justice, nor is He going to sacrifice justice on the altar of love. He's both. And that's where Christ comes into the picture. How is it that God can forgive me because somebody took my place? That's substitution. We're going to talk about that. God, Christ took my place on the cross. He took the punishment due me. And, talk about not fair. That wasn't fair. and that wasn't fair for Christ, right? That's right. We don't, we don't like that. And, and, and a way that, really one of, the, one of the antidotes to this is to engender and work on it. And I've been working on it now for 20 years and I've got a few more years to go if, if I'm still alive in 20 years. Um, well, I'll never get there. Is um, learning to thank God for everything He's given you and not worry about what you don't have, but thank Him for what you do have. And learning to just every day when you get up say, you know, thank you, Father, for allowing me to see a beautiful sunrise. Thank you for a job. Thank you for my food. Thank you for my health. Thank you for the very next breath I take. And you start working on that, and all of a sudden this whole fairness thing sort of... When you start realizing that you don't really deserve anything at all, period, end of discussion, then anything you have is a plus. And um, it, it, it sort of helps mitigate this. Well, why is it that he has this and I ain't got that? And that's not fair that... You know, it's nothing more than a bunch of little kids around the table when you're feeding them as a parent and they're crying because one guy's got a, one kid's got a bigger piece of ham than the other does. You know, instead think that you have a piece of ham at all. You know, that's probably a bad analogy, but I think we can all relate to that. Or tofu, as the case may be. Um, God, some would say, uh, God would never allow an eternal chamber of horrors to exist. Why is that? Well, they, they just don't like that image of God. 
Well, you don't go on what you think God is. What is that? That's idolatry. You know that, right? What is idolatry? Idolatry is making God into something he is not. That could be a stone, it could be a rock, it could be whatever, or, or violating the nature and character of God is idolatry. That is idolatry. And then they say, well, eternal death, what that means is it doesn't mean that they're, they're going to be in hell forever. What it means is it's a final kind of thing. I heard Clark Pinnock dance around this thing, and I wanted to reach through the radio and slap him. Um, he, he said, well... Did you want to choke him? Yeah. It's like... You remember the passage where Christ says some will, go, some will go into everlasting life and some into punishment and everlasting death? Um, John 5, I think it is. Many that sleep in the dust are... No, no, John 5, 23 and 24 is the verse. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, it's John 5. And Christ is just speaking generally here in John 5. Um, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Um, and then there's another, uh, verse 29, and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. Um, and then there's another passage where it talks about, in the same passage, some will awaken to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And what they say is, say, now, well, and I heard Clark Pinnock say this. Well, in the first, ver- first part of that, everlasting life, that refers to the eternal life, the life that never ends. But in the second part of the verse, everlasting really means final, um, irreversible judgment. Do you follow what he just did? You take the same word, it means one thing in the first part of the verse, it means something else in the second part of the verse. That's called a split hermeneutic. That's a fancy word. All right? What it means is you're, you're doing what Tweedledee and Tweedledum does, right? A word means nothing more than what I want it to mean. That's Alice in Wonderland kind of stuff. I think it's them, what, Tweedledee and Tweedledum that said that. The whole point there is that, no, the, it, it means the same thing. If it means everlasting in one sense, it means everlasting in the other sense. You can't make... Unless the Greek word is different, unless the context is different, which in this case it isn't. So the point is, we have everlasting life, which means it will last forever. They have everlasting death, which means it will last forever. It doesn't mean final. It doesn't mean final. And he tried to dance around this, and it was like, come on. And then they say, well, how can the righteous enjoy heaven knowing that hell exists? How can you enjoy heaven if you know that your lost, your loved ones, your people you know are in hell? How can you do that? Well, it's very easy. What does Romans or Revelation say? God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And even if you did know, what would you realize? God is just. God is doing the right thing. That, that's a straw man argument, by the way. That doesn't mean anything. So how can you enjoy heaven? You'd be sad forever because, you know, somebody you know is going to be in hell. Well, you will realize in in your perfect resurrected mind that if they are there, they're there because of the justice of God. They're not there because God is just whimsical. They're there because they deserve to be there. And I don't think we'll remember that. I don't think really we will have that in our mind. We will not remember that. And then some say, well, how can a sin against God in time deserve eternal and unending punishment in the next life? How can one follow-up now 
result in eternal punishment. Well, it's because you're sinning against an eternal God. You're not sinning against a temporal God. You're not existing, sinning against someone that's bound inside the box. This is the God outside the box. This is the eternal God. These are all straw man arguments. You can't go there because what you're doing is you're imposing your thinking, your view of morality, your view of right and wrong on the eternal God. And when you do that, you're going to mess him up because he's going to come out to be something that he is not. You let him tell you what he is like. Yeah. The only way you can be made pure is by the blood of Christ. You can't be made pure any other way. No amount of ritual, no amount of, of gyrations you do, no amount of religiosity is going to make you right before God. The only one that can do that is God. God's got to transform you from the inside out. Even Enoch was born in sin and shaped in iniquity. Yep. Everybody. And it, it's God's grace that transforms you. You've got to understand, I don't think we really, in our fallen state down here, we don't really understand the transforming power of God and what He has done. We don't, we don't, we're not going to get that until we get to heaven and see how He has transformed us. He's made us different. And if you're a Christian, you're going to be different. You understand that. I hope you don't get this idea that by you know, walking down an aisle and throwing a pine cone in the fire and saying a prayer, you're in. There's transformation of life. You're different. You're not the same old thing. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Stole from the bag. Right, and then you can't see how far it's going to go. We as people will do something and you'll say, okay, like that little white line. You know what I mean? But where does that lead you? How does that grow? Yeah, and we, we don't understand how bad sin is. That's one of our problems. We don't really understand and comprehend how bad it is because we're comparing a bunch of lumps of coal to other lumps of coal, Right? We're not comparing ourselves to the purity of Christ. I heard a good message by uh, Steve Lawson who, who said the problem we have when we think about the, you know, the scales. He said when we think of, you know, well, I'm better than this other person, you can always find someone worse than you. All right. He says, but the, but the balance, the God's balance is not you and the drunken guy down the street. It's you and the perfect righteousness of Christ. You're done for. You're not, you're not comparing yourself to, and that's our problem, we compare ourselves to each other. You compare yourself to Christ, the perfect righteousness of Christ, and we all fall way short. Some of us may fall shorter than others, but none of us are going to reach that level of perfection. What's some arguments for eternality? Revelation 14, 10 through 11. These are a couple of the, probably the best verses. We talked about these. The smoke of the torment ascends up forever. The fact that there's torment forever means what? Consciousness forever. You can't, consci- you can't torment something that doesn't exist. If these people go out of existence, there's no conscious torment. Yeah. No rest day or night. The rocks need rest. No, do dead 
um, unconscious or, or non-existent people need rest. No, this is talking about consciousness. They have no rest day or night. It's never going to end. There's never going to be a downtime. Revelation 20.10 Satan after a thousand years is cast into a lake of fire where the beasts and false prophets still are. There's no concept that there is any kind of end to that. Revelation 21.8-27 talks about the eternal state. Revelation 21 is talking about the eternal state and it says, and outside the city are... And then it gives a list of people who are outside the city. Liars, idolaters, drunken... It talks about all the people who are outside. So if we are conscious inside the city in the eternal state in heaven and outside the city, in other words, in hell, there are other people, what does that mean? They're still there. They're still conscious. They're still in that place. Revelation 22.11 talks about what um, people call like the doctrine of eternal fixation. The, the word, verse basic says, let him who is unjust be unjust still. Let him who was unholy be unholy still. There comes a point in, in, in existence when people will be confirmed in whatever state they're in. If they are holy, they will be holy forever. If they are unholy, they will be unholy forever. And I like the holy forever part, right? Because that means when I get to heaven, I can't do something to become unholy. I'll be there forever. I will never be kicked out because I, I did something wrong. I, di- I didn't do the right thing. Um, let's look at Revelation 20, 21 here. See, the beauty about this is I don't have to get through this material. I, I'd like to, but it's more important that we understand it. Verse 10, he said, let the, or 11, Let the evildoer still do evil. Let the filthy still be filthy. And the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. This is, this is the end of time. This is the eternal state. This is, this is our beginning of our eternal existence. And God is basically saying the one who is filthy will be filthy how long? Forever. The one who is unholy will be unholy forever. And the one who is righteous will be righteous forever. Alright, so there's a state, there's a day of eternal fixation. And what you are, you will be forever. No purgatory here. No purgatory. Daniel 12.2 talks about everlasting. Many asleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting right, um, life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And notice that if, if the righteous have everlasting consciousness in heaven, then the lost will have everlasting consciousness in hell. There's no distinction there. Luke 16, 19 through 30, the rich man and Lazarus, there's no indication he was to be eliminated from existence. I heard a message one time by the head of the Worldwide Church of God, Armstrongism, talk about this. They believed in annihilationism. They said, yeah, the, the lost man, or the, 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 the um, rich man was going to be burned up and go out of existence. And it's like, well, that's, why would God do that? Why don't you just put him out of existence, right? Why throw him in the fire and burn him up and put him out of existence? If you're going to be out of existence, just die and that's the end of it, right? That doesn't make any sense. And, and what was the horror to the rich man? Tell, tell Lazarus to go and tell my brothers so they don't come here too. See, here's, here's, here's something you need to understand about hell too. Hell and the lake of fire. It is not remedial. 
it is punitive. What do you mean by that? It's not to make you better, it's to punish you. The rich man in hell, in the Hades, when he looked at the Hades, God did not send him there to remediate his sin. That sort of blows purgatory up too. That's not what hell's about. Hell's not down there to remediate you. Hell's down there to punish you. There, and, and he didn't argue against that. The rich man did not say, wait a minute, it's unfair. Why am I here? It's unfair that I'm here. No, he understood he was getting justice. There's no hint in that conversation that he thought that God was being unfair. But he was concerned that his brothers not come there. And what did Abraham say? They have Moses and the prophets. They have the Bible. They, you want to avoid hell, here, this will tell you how to avoid it. And if somebody comes back from hell and gives you a blow-by-blow account of what it's like, people won't believe anyways. It's the Bible that gives you that information. There's no indication that he was about to go out of existence. Christ uses the term everlasting fire in, Revela- in Matthew 25. You're going to go into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And the Greek word there means everlasting. It means lasting forever. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. I mean, you know, I'm belaboring this and like I'm beating a horse to death, but you're going to run into Christians, you're going to run into people that really believe that God wouldn't wouldn't punish somebody forever. I mean, that's sort of, man, you know, what kind of God does that? Well, the answer is the God of the Bible does that because that's what he said he's going to do. And if you've got a different God, then that's not the God of the Bible. You've got the wrong one. Mark 9, 42-50, Christ says, In hell the worm will never die and the fire will never go out. What do worms do when the food goes? Metaphorically. They die, right? What happens when the fire burns all the consumable stuff? It goes out. What did Christ say? The worm will never die, the fire will never be quenched, which means that there will always be an eternal flame. Eternal flame. He's, and he's speaking metaphorically there. But that metaphorical has a basis in reality. It's never going to end. It's, it's, it's an eternal thing. The great white throne would be unnecessary if there's no eternal punishment. Why? God just wipes away out all the loss and they just go out of existence and they just be erased from... And Satan as well, Satan would be erased from existence. The demons would be erased from existence. There's no need for a judgment. There's no need for a great white throne. There's no need to open the books. God's gone to a lot of bother if, it's, if he can just wipe them out of existence. Why keep the records? There's a hint even in that that there is a, an eternality to this. Are there degrees of punishment? Yes, we talked about that. Why keep books if everybody gets the same punishment? Right? Why keep a record? Luke 10, 13-15 talks about it's more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon. And why have a final judgment if everybody gets the same punishment? We, we talked about these things here. Why did unrighteous dead go to Hades prior to the final judgment? Well, that's a place of temporary confinement, right? That's a place, that's a holding cell. That's the county jail, so to speak, until they receive their final judgment and are sent to eternal lake of fire. And this is another thing. If we get rewarded on the basis of our righteous, on our goodness and on, on our on our faithfulness to the Word of God, and our faithfulness to, to God, then the right, unrighteous should get punished depending on how bad they were. 
It's all about God being just. That, and, and, and we know that because that's what God says. That's what God says about himself. Why would the unrighteous, why are not the unrighteous dead immediately judged at death and sentenced to their place of torment? Well, we answered this. Your sin does not end at the moment of death. Your sin ends when the game is over. And, and, and all the property, you know, it's like a Monopoly game. The game isn't over until it's over, and then you add up all the money, and whoever has the most money wins. But in this case, it's not money, it's something different. But that's sort of a, probably a bad metaphor of it. But for God to be just, He's going to take everything into consideration. Everything. Everything. That's hell. Any, any questions so far? We, we went through a lot of stuff and it took a little bit longer than I thought it would, but I think it's important that we work through this. Um, hell is a place you don't want to go to, folks. And yet there are many people who will be there forever. Yeah? We're going to talk about that in, in, in some detail, but the answer I would give is that the God who saves you transforms you. You're different. Um, you're not perfect. None of us are perfect in here. And um, probably you could take any five-minute snippet of anybody's life in here and probably say, boy, they're, they're definitely not saved. Look what they did. But the, the answer to that is that the God who saves you transforms you. If you're talking to somebody who says, I went forward, I prayed the prayer, I did whatever. And you see, no, no desire for godly living, no desire for the Word of God, no desire to be around Christians, no holy aspirations, no hatred of sin, no, no conviction of sin when they sin, then I would say they're not a Christian. They're self-deceived. They're self-deceived. That God's, that God makes you different. I do not believe that you can become a Christian and have absolutely no change in your life because God transforms you. And that's not you doing it. It's God who does the transforming work. And Paul said that. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. You're not the same old. And, and you don't want to... And people say, well, you know, but then why do I still sin? Well, that's the struggle that Paul had. He still sinned, but he was convicted when he sinned. He didn't want to. And, that, and that's a good thing to ask yourself. When you sin, do you want to do that? If you say, no, I don't want to sin, I want to do right, I want to do the right thing, that's evidence of the Holy Spirit within you. That's the evidence of new life. But I've known people that sin and it doesn't matter to them. They care less. That's a problem. I, I would be worried about that. I, you're, you're different. You're, you're not the same. Well, let's at least start the doctrine of heaven. We've got 15 minutes here. Um... Just as hell is an eternal place for the lost, heaven is an eternal place for the redeemed. And I'm going to call us the redeemed, and I'm going to try to keep saying that. We are redeemed. We don't have notes on this, I don't think. Um, we'll get them next week. Um, it was my bad. I didn't get them to Teresa. It's not her fault. Um, I take the blame on that. Uh, there are three major... And, and when we talk about heaven, you know... Closely connected with this is the idea of the resurrection. And by the way, there's a resurrection of the lost and a resurrection of the righteous. We're going to look at the resurrection of the righteous now. By the way, when, was the resurre- when is the resurrection of the lost? When are they raised again from the dead? 
the great white throne judgment. That's the second resurrection. The first resurrection we're part of. They're part of the second resurrection. The first resurrection, if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, you're probably going to want to go to this passage. 1 Corinthians 15. It talks about three resurrections, three parts of the first resurrection. Paul, in fact, if you want to understand about the resurrection, there is the resurrection chapter of the Bible, which is 1 Corinthians 15. Um, This is one of those rare, rare doctrines where you actually have a whole chapter given to it. Um, which is helpful. You don't have to traipse through the Bible to put it together. There's one concise place that has it. And really what Paul is arguing about in 1 Corinthians 15 is that the resurrection really is the keystone of our faith. What does he mean by that? If Christ did not bodily, physically rise again from the dead, then our religion, our faith is vain. Why? Because Christ's resurrection is the proof that the message, the gospel that he preached is the right message. God raised him from the dead to validate, to prove, to, to tell us that the truth of the gospel is the truth. And because Christ rose again from the dead, we are going to rise again from the dead. And if Christ rose physically from the dead, we are going to rise physically from the dead. We're not going to have the same body that we have now. It's going to be different, but it's going to be, we're talking about it's going to be recognizable. But it talks about the first resurrection. And then when you look at the first resurrection, there are three major components to it. Christ and the first fruits. Um, Matthew 28, 15 through 16 says something interesting. When Christ rose from the dead, it said, And many of the dead rose and walked the streets of Jerusalem. And there's a, sort of an obtuse little passage there. And you scratch your, wow, that's weird. You know, what, what is that? Well, what is the first fruits? Let's think of it in terms of agriculture. You know, most of us are not agriculturally minded here. Any farmers here? Anybody raised on a farm? What is the first fruits? It's the first thing to harvest. And what is it a promise of, so to speak? And of a further harvest, right? The first fruits is the first part of that. The first cutting. It's the first... And in the Bible, in the Old Testament, what was the Israelites to do with the first fruits? And why is that? Trusted God for the rest of the harvest. It was part. You gave God the first. You gave God the best. All right. Christ in the first fruits apparently is God, basically putting His stamp of approval on Christ's ministry. Christ rose again from the dead, physically, bodily. Now. Dan talked about this a while back when we talked about Christ. How do you know Christ rose again from the dead physically? Well, he was touched, right? He could eat. He said, I have flesh and bone. Look, I'm not, I'm not some ghost. I'm not some spirit being. I, I have physicality to me. Christ rose again physically, bodily, from the dead. His body was not there in the tomb, right? It was not there. They, it wasn't. Um, the first fruits are a select group of, and again, we, you, you, got, you can't be precise on this because there's only one, there's only two places this is hinted at here in First Corinthians and, and um, Matthew 28. But apparently, when Christ rose again from the dead, there were a few people that rose again with him. We don't know who they are. Were, were they all of the Old Testament saints? No, it doesn't seem to indicate that. But there were some. That was, that's why I like the first fruits. Christ and the first fruits. 
It talks about that in First Corinthians. Let's look at First Corinthians 15. And I would suggest you go home and read First Corinthians 15 and just try to work through it and see what Paul is saying here. But Christ says, or yeah, not Christ, but Paul says in verse uh, 24, um, for, well, verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, what it means by that, if I could exegete the passage for you, it doesn't mean, um, all doesn't necessarily mean all. If, if you mean by every person, necessarily. All right? It's a figure of speech. In Adam all die. Did everybody die in Adam? Sure we did, right? We all died in Adam, right? When Adam fell, we all fell with him. So that all is, means all. So in Christ, all will be made alive. Does that mean everybody then is redeemed? Well, no, not no, it doesn't. It's a figure of speech. Following me? You're getting confused. It's a figure of speech. Paul is not saying every human being that ever lived is going to be made alive in Christ. Now, all the redeemed, all those who are elect will be, but not every human being, because we have other passages that tell us not everybody's going to get there. He's using a figure of speech. But then he says this, um, but each one in his own order. Each one what? Each one of those who are going to be redeemed, each of the ones who are going to be raised in Christ, are going to be redeemed in their own order. What do you have? You have Christ, the first fruits. Christ and the first fruits. So there was somebody that was, re- that was resurrected when Christ was. And that's the Matthew 28 passage. We don't know who they are. It wasn't everybody. There's a few people that were raised again from the dead. And it was sort of like God giving his approval that Christ's death was sufficient, that the gospel is true, and that resurrection is a reality. And then it says, and then those, those at his coming who belong to Christ. Who are those? Well, that's, some people say that's the main harvest. When does that happen? Well, when Christ comes again, what, do we, what happens to us? We're, if we're alive, we are translated. If we're dead, we are resurrected. That's the rapture, right? That's the, that's the next event. We're going to be raised again from the dead. And then it says, Christ the firstfruits, then those who are alive. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. When does that happen? Well, that happens at the end of the millennium. Alright, so let's look at what we're talking about here. There's a first resurrection. Those who are part of the first resurrection are the righteous. That's Revelation. There's the first resurrection, Revelation 20. There's the first resurrection. There's the second resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection on which the second death has no power. So, you want to be part of the first resurrection. You got that so far? Barry? Matthew 28, 15, is that the correct reference? No, it isn't. Yeah, I was going to tell you, Matthew 27. Or 27. See, I, I... Sorry about that, folks. Got the wrong passage. Yeah. I was dyslexic when I wrote that down. 27... Yeah, there's a Matthew 28, there's a Matthew 27, so. Right, 51 through 53. So, there's the first resurrection, there's the second resurrection. We know that in Revelation 20. Okay? 
everybody who's part of the second resurrection goes to the lake of fire. Everyone who's part of the first resurrection are part of the redeemed. But when you look at the first resurrection, there are three phases to that first resurrection. There's the Christ in the first fruits. When did that happen? At his resurrection. There's the main harvest. When does that happen? The second coming. There is the last gleaning. Some people saw it's the last gleanings. When does that happen? At the end of the millennium. Why is that? Because there are going to be righteous people during the millennium that are in their physical bodies that will need to be resurrected to a glorified state to enjoy heaven forever. You follow? Righteous people in their... Everybody following? And here's Clarence Larkin. Come try I'm going to throw this out Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I just I just think it's very interesting that here there there's spirits and souls have already been lifted to new heaven and after that their bodies are resurrected. We're gonna have to be the case for us. If you come next week we'll talk about that. Because we're out of time this week, but I will talk about that. Um, some say that and this some say that the first phase of the resurrection when Christ rose from the dead, he, he raised all of the redeemed to that point in time. All the Old Testament saints were redeemed. Um, the reason I don't believe that is in Daniel chapter 12. Okay? Daniel 12, 1, 2. It's talking about the tribulation. Talking about the end times. And there it seems that the Old Testament saints that's talking about there are resurrected during the tribulational time. Not prior to that. Okay? Is that totally confusing? Well, you, we'll sort it out. You think about the penalty of being on the cross. Christ says, today, you'll be with me. Yes. Does that mean, Larkin suggests that the soul of the penitent thief descended into paradise. Yeah, we're going to talk about paradise, things like that. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm going to get there, don't worry. But this other class will kick us out if we don't get out of here pretty soon. Um, the whole point here, and maybe this is probably a bad slide to start on, but, but the whole point is there's two resurrections. There's the first resurrection, there's the second. The first resurrection has three main pieces to it. Christ and the first fruits, the main harvest, and the last gleanings. You want to be part of the first resurrection. Because on, if you're part of the first resurrection, the second death has no power on you. What is that? To be cast into the lake of fire. That is the second death. And um, we'll have to stop there. And we'll pick up here next week. So. All right. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, thanks for a gorgeous day. And Father, help us to really ponder what we've, we've learned from your word today. This is tough for us to understand because there's so much of us, so much of our fallenness that just doesn't like the idea of eternal punishment. Doesn't like the idea of people being in hell forever. We don't like that. That's what you said. So we either have to believe you or we have to believe our own mind, our own understanding. And I pray, Father, that we would believe you instead. And uh, give, us, give us a renewed desire to reach others with the gospel of Christ, with the message of the good news. And help us to be thankful, Father, for your grace in our lives and to appreciate everything you've done for us because 
none of us deserve any good thing from your hand, but you've been so good to us. We thank you for that. And we thank you for this time again together. In Christ's name, amen.